1: my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home, went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall, no quit in me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have.
0: Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode, but before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. So I work in business and in sport, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication, even when we get into today around emotion regulation and developing a relationship with your emotions, when we label competencies like that as soft, it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, they know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who continue to support the book and have purchased it and have written us reviews. We really have been overwhelmed by the response the book continues to get. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, it would mean the world to us if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help expand our reach for the podcast, and thanks to all of you who continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. So I think where I should start with Carol Robin is to give you a bit of a background On What she's been up to so she taught the legendary interpersonal dynamics course affectionately known by students as touchy-feely at the Stanford graduate school of business and what's interesting about this was I was recently at a conference with someone and they mentioned they went to Stanford business school and I said oh tell me a little bit more about this and they actually mentioned Carol and her course when I told them about my background in psychology so I had talked to that person, and then I had run into someone else who's familiar with Carol and her teaching, and they raved about her and the class that she taught. So we're going to get into her experience teaching that course, and we're going to dive right in with an experience that she shares in her recent book that she uses in that class. Carol is somebody who brings principles and processes of the touchy-feely experience to executives in Silicon Valley. Prior to coming to Stanford, she had careers in sales and marketing management and was a partner in two consulting firms. You're going to find that she's a pretty big high achiever, but she's also worked a lot on herself actually right Before we were recording this, she was about to leave the next day to go on a meditation retreat. So she's constantly working on herself, and I think that's what makes this conversation so rich. She's the co-author of the highly acclaimed and award-winning book, Connect, which we certainly dive into in this book. In addition to that, she is somebody that you're going to love to learn with. She's a teacher, but she's also a learner. She is constantly curious and she even will ask questions in this conversation about me. So I think you're going to appreciate the teachings, but also the learnings. So here is Carol Robin. Carol, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to chat with you, to learn from you today. The beauty of having a podcast is you get to learn from people who's who teach or who taught at schools that you would have never gotten into. And now you have the opportunity to learn from them. So I'm excited to learn from you today. And where I thought we'd start is with this, if you really knew me exercise that you would bring into your classroom. So first tee us up and let us know what the exercise is. If you want me to go first, I'll go first, but then I want to also find out more about you and if we really knew you as well.
1: Sure. Well, actually, I'm happy to go first. I'm happy to go first for a couple of reasons. One is that I think it's important to model when you're a leader. Um, And second, um, I think that it's always important to provide some comfort for the other person. If you're going to ask them to become better known, then you should maybe make the first step in becoming better known. So as context though, um, so I taught this a you know, legendary course of the graduate school of business at Stanford for many, many years. Th- then I left Stanford. I started my own uh, nonprofit called Leaders in Tech, where I brought everything I used to teach at Stanford to a bunch of CEOs and founders in Silicon Valley. And the If You Really Knew Me activity is one that I introduced when I brought all these CEOs and founders uh, into, the, into that program. I didn't use it at Stanford. Um, the really cool thing about uh, having brought it to my CEOs and founder participants and leaders in tech is that they are now all using it. Well, many of them are using it with their teams. So it's, it's being, uh, you know, paid forward, if you will. Uh, so this is how it works. We, you know, we take a minute and a half or two minutes to say, if you really knew me and then complete that phrase as many times as you can in the time allotted Um, and then the other participants say when I heard you say and then they so that you don't get left hanging and then the next participant goes so that's how the activity works you and I can try it in short form
0: So, Carol, Um, just so I understand, so you'll start by saying, if you really knew me, you'll share something. Right. And then I am going to say, after you're done talking, I'll say, I heard, walk me through that again, that second piece.
1: The second piece is just, when I heard you say, and then you complete that sentence. When I heard you say that, it reminded me of, when I heard you say that, I felt why. By the way, the course is affectionately known by the students as touchy-feely. And that's because there's a big emphasis on feelings, not touching and how important feelings are to connecting with others and becoming known. So um, one way I could do if you really knew me was to you know, give you some biographical data. Another one is for me to tell you a little bit about how I'm feeling right here and right now. And that might help you get to know me in a very different way than looking me up on LinkedIn. So if you really knew, you got it? So we're good to go.
0: I'm ready.
1: So if you really knew me, you would know that uh, every time I do a podcast, and this is no exception, I hold this little hope that somebody who's listening will actually do something (laughs) with what I have been teaching for 35 years, and that it will have an impact on them, their life, and the people in their lives. Um, If you really knew me, you would know that um, I am getting ready to go off on a meditation retreat starting tomorrow, and I'm really psyched about it, and I am really stressed about everything I've got to get done before I get there tomorrow. Uh, If you really knew me, you would know that before I go tomorrow, um, I'm going to actually no. If you really knew me, you'd know that one of the big sacrifices of going there this weekend is that tomorrow is Fridays are my days with my, uh, my son's son. I feel too, too young to call myself a grandmother um, who's, one, uh, who's 14 months old. And uh, if you really knew me, you would know that I, uh, I don't get to see him tomorrow because I'm going on this retreat and it was a big trade-off. I'll stop
0: there. So when I heard you say the word impact, as you were talking about the podcast and hoping somebody would listen and be impacted by our conversation, I felt similarly. And I always wonder who is listening. Mm -hmm. And I try not to take that for granted because you never know what will be said during our time today. And that, that makes me feel excited and Mm -hmm. energized and curious Mm
1: -hmm. to
0: learn with you today. Cool. Great. The other, yeah, the the only other thing I was going to say is when I heard you say my son's son, it made me smile and it made me (laughs) think about my mom and it made me think about her relationship with my kids. And, um, Yeah, I I, I feel very grateful that my mom is still around to experience my kids. Cool. Thank you. So I'll go next. Mm -hmm. So if you really knew me, you would know that I actually got coached this morning. I have a coach that Mm -hmm. coaches me. And one of the themes that I brought up with her was around arguing. And I have come to realize that I can get very argumentative very quickly and that side of me uh, is helpful at times, but often is a side of me upon reflection that I'm going to use the word regret, that I regret how I approach conversations with people. And if you really knew me, you would know that I'm really excited to talk to you today to try to continue to grow and develop my capacity to have conversations, especially with people that I love. I actually don't find it to be something with people that I'm not as connected to, but the, peop- the more connected I am to people, I find the more likely I am to argue over very trivial, ridiculous things. And so if you really knew me, you would know that this is something that is a work in progress, but that I am still optimistic and hopeful. And once again, I'll use that word excited and energized to explore with you today. So I'm going to use our time together selfishly. And if you really knew me, uh, you would know that that's part of why I launched this podcast.
1: Oh, that's great. Well, thank you very much. And uh, oh, so many things that I uh, enjoyed in listening to you. First of all, um, I I love the I felt very drawn toward your clear willingness to look at yourself and want to be better. Um, I, I don't ever take that for granted anymore. <laughs> um, secondly, I was really uh, I was really curious about about why it is that it's so much harder for you to manage that um, sort of argumentative part of you with the people that you love the most. I had some hypotheses uh, and I was really curious to explore that with you. Um, and uh, And third, you said, you know, I'm a work in progress I cannot tell you how many times I have used those exact words. I sort of felt instantly more connected to you in, 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 my, in, in your articulation of something that I believe is so important for all of us to acknowledge. We're all, you know, we're all works in progress. And I'm gonna take it one step further and say it reminds me of the fact that I say every opportunity with another human being, is an opportunity to learn. Every interaction with another human being is an opportunity to learn about ourselves, to learn about them, and to learn about relationships. So thanks, that was great.
0: I love the exercise. I'm stealing it, we're running with it. I I think it's just simple. And usually when it's simple, that doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily diminish the impact it can have. Uh, It's interesting you mentioned learning and being a student. And you don't know this, but we were actually on a call together when Adam Grant was presenting his new book and mm-hmm. you came on the screen. I think you asked a question to Adam, mm-hmm. but here you are, and you are trying to learn from Adam about his book. Mm-hmm. And so for you, how do you navigate when it's time to be a student and when it's time to be a teacher? And how do mm-hmm. you wear both of those hats um, in your in your world? Cool question.
1: So. I don't, um, I see them so intertwined. I don't think I can be a good teacher if I'm not constantly a good student. Um, and uh, and I think that the more I learn as a student, the more motivated I am to teach. So for me, it's not a question of, do I put one hat on and, and then put the other hat on, it's it just kind of like I'm always both. Um, it also ties to a belief I have that too much education is loaded with baggage around teachers being the ones who know and students being the ones who don't. I, you know I believe one of the things that drives people apart the most is power differentials that's uh, that's the ultimate power differential same reason that we have so much dysfunction in organizations the boss versus the report uh, and i just i mean there's always going to be a power differential i'm not trying to deny that they exist but i don't think we should i don't think we should try to make them bigger <laughs> i think we should actually try to work on making them smaller
0: you talked about in the book your relationship with david who's your co-author yeah. And you co-taught this course together, but power dynamics, you are, uh, you open up and are vulnerable about the dynamics that were at play. He started the course, then brought you in almost as a protege or a mentee and then wanted you to take over. And there's almost a riff in the partnership, hate to be a spoiler in the book, but, um, and, and and so those power dynamics where I play with you and him, how were you able to, um, work on those power dynamics and, yeah. and still have a positive relationship with him?
1: Well, I mean, you're right that I said, I'd never talk to him again at one point. And, and that was, and then, you know, three years later, we ended up, you know, co-signing a, a deal to write a book together. <laughs> um, so I think if we had not both been equipped with all the skills and competencies that we taught for decades, I'm not sure we would have come back. So that's so first of all, I think we both had, we both at least had the advantage of having some tools at our disposal. Second, I think that I he was amazingly good at consistently trying to close the power differential. It was, so I was, I was a woman, I was younger. I was not a career academic. There were so many and in academia, man. uh, I did not come from academia. I was not published, you know. um, And he never allowed any of that to matter to him in the way he saw me. So that eventually I, had to say, well, am I going to listen to him or am I going to continue to be with my own Mishagas? For those of you who aren't familiar with the word, my own craziness neurosis about how I'm I'm less than or smaller than. And and actually it was in stepping up during that riff and in confronting him full bore that I fully overcame my sense of, uh, of having a power differential. And that's what actually eventually led us being even closer. You,
0: uh, mentioned, and, you, you mentioned both of you having the tools though, and the skills. Yes. I'm thinking about the, one of the people that I argue with yes. and I, I'm, I'm serious. This is my plan right now is I want to actually get and talk to my coach about this. I want to get feedback from people closest to me who have witnessed yeah. when I'm going at it with. This person, mm-hmm. and I want to get mm-hmm. their view on me and mm-hmm. what how I'm acting to try to almost get a three hundred and sixty perspective. Yeah, sure, that's that's a decent step, but even beyond that, one of the things I'm wondering about is how do we do it with someone who doesn't necessarily have the skills that you've worked your career on and David's worked his career on. And, and right. in some ways, my, my career, I've, I've spent a lot of time working on myself and emotions <laughs> and mindset and uh, a lot of different pieces. But what happens if the other person does not have the same tools? How, how do you deal with those conflicts or confrontations or disagreements?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing you do is you model. <laughs> Um and uh and when you teed up what you wanted to do with this person and you get your 360, one of the things that was missing for me in your description of your plan is to include your intent. Mm. I, I want to gather all this data because what I really want is I want the outcome of this to be. Um, and so that's part of the modeling. Uh if you're going to uh and also Asking somebody to give you feedback, it has the potential to make them feel vulnerable. And so then one thing to think about is how vulnerable do you want to be up front uh, so that they don't they don't feel as vulnerable because they're stepping into a void. And one of them is to, is to one of the ways to do that, of course, is just to name your intent. And another one is to own, you know, the stuff that you do that you're not happy about and that you want to figure out how to fix Uh, and be very to your point and your word intentional about making sure they understand what you're hoping will come of all this.
0: That's, that's really helpful. And I like the modeling part and expressing specific intent and being clear with the intent. So
1: I, I have one other suggestion yeah, yeah go ahead which is once you've had the conversation or maybe halfway through the conversation you might want to stop and say you know how are you feeling right now what's what's working for you what's working for us and and you can also say the same thing so there's a way to extract what's happening for learning in the moment how are we doing here Are we, you know, are we feeling, are we both feeling like this is, you know, worth our time, even if we're uncomfortable? Are we, are we feeling good about where we might end up? Are we, are we, do we feel ourselves getting closer or getting more distant from each other? So don't be afraid to name what's going on for you and then ask them what's going on for them.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because with you and David, it was around a specific event when it came to the future of the class you were going to teach and the parameters with that class. But as I hear you talk, it sounds like there was a lot of stuff underneath that when it comes to the power dynamics or maybe the way he viewed it as a man and and how you viewed it as a woman. And so there was stuff underneath it. And for me, like when I'm thinking about doing this work, there's not actually been an event it's just a recognition on my end. It's like, wait a second. I don't like how I am showing up in mm-hmm. that, in those situations. Yeah. And we don't need an event to like, I love this person. I, 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 respect them. I trust them and I want to have a great relationship and be connected to them. And so before we get to an event, yes. I want to try to like go to the dentist before we get yes. the cavity. That's it's a, it's cleaning. a
1: great approach. <laughs> we'll,
0: <Much> see. <laughs> we'll see better. We'll see. But, but back to you and David, What did he see in you? Because you said, Hey, I didn't come from academia. You know, I'm in this man's world. And he taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, Carol, I think you can help us with this. Do you know what he saw in you? Um, you know, when, when you first started doing this work?
1: Uh, it's a really good question and it's a hard one for me to answer. Um, because if you really knew me right now in that question, it takes me to talking about stuff that, sound, that I fear sounds like uh, self-aggrandizement, uh, you know, uh, thinking, thinking more of myself than I deserve, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but but I, I believe, so it, I, I feel vulnerable answering it. And I also believe in leaning into that. So um, because he told me many, many times that he knew a lot of people who were good at this and some that were very good. And he thought I was the most exceptional person at it that he had met and known.
0: And, Do you know what's, what's underneath the exception?
1: Um, I think one of them is that I'm that I, I was and am unafraid to lean in to the discomfort, um, just like I'm doing right now. And not everybody is. Um, and I think a fundamental premise of learning and growth is, you know, you don't learn anything unless you step outside your comfort zone. That's why they don't start you out. That That's why they don't leave you on a bunny slope when you learn how to ski. Uh, it's also why they don't start you out on a double black diamond. So, and I've kind of, I, I live that. You know, David was the father of touchy-feely. That's what the students affectionately called the class. Um, I became known as the queen of touchy-feely. And when I, when I asked some people like, I don't quite understand why, and other people taught the class too, why was I the queen? Why did every, all the students consider me the queen? And the answer that I got was, well, you live it. You know, having any interaction with you is, is essentially watching everything you teach in action. And uh, and that's just because for me, that's, that's the way to be congruent and consistent. Uh, I don't want to be one person in one setting and another person in another setting. Um, so I think that was part of it. I think part of it was that Maybe because I did come from academia uh, and I did come from business, he saw that I might have ways to help my colleagues at, and, and especially my, our students connect the dots between what we were teaching and why it was going to be good for them in business. Um, and, you know, I had tons of stories and anecdotes that I could tell. Where, because I had been, you know, a a junior executive, I'd been a consultant, I'd done all kinds of things. And then I could say, so if you think I'm, you know, this is all hogwash, let me give you an example of why never sharing your feelings ends up costing you in business. And then I could actually give them a real example.
0: It's interesting. You bring up fear, you actually end the book talking about fear. And I think about my upbringing people will ask me, Brian, why, how did you have the fearlessness to start a podcast or write a mm-hmm. newsletter or write a book mm-hmm. or like people look at me and they say, ah, I, I'm scared or I'm, I would be mm-hmm. too nervous. And if I were to answer it, I would say, I don't know. I think my parents raised me and my brothers to, to go for it and to not worry about failing that much. And there was a Fearlessness that they embedded into the three of us. And we all show it in different ways. But I do think there is a fearlessness, a confidence. Confidence is another thing I was kind of curious to talk about with you as you started your answer and saying that you had a hard time sort of answering that uh, (laughs) about yourself. So we might park confidence for a minute, but fearlessness for you. You talk about your parents in the book, and it's interesting because you described your dad as vulnerable, even though he wasn't necessarily robust with how much he talked. And then your mom, it sounds like, talked a lot, but there was also anger and there was also these other pieces to her that were a challenge for you and her relationship, including your fearlessness to maybe get a PhD and to have a job and to have a career, and so if you think about your capacity to step into discomfort, where okay. do you think that comes from for you?
1: So, I think I was born feisty. Hmm. Uh, I think that's a little. I think that's hardwired. I, th- I am uh, too. I am too. <laughs> I was. I was born <laughs> feisty. I was born competitive. One of my earliest memories. I was raised in Mexico by the way, you know, I spent the first 17 years of my life in Mexico city. And my, one of my earliest memories was being at a little kid's birthday party. And, and, you know, in Mexico, you break a pinata. That's part of, so there was a pinata at every birthday party. I was maybe five. I don't know. And I'm wearing my little party dress. And then I'm, I'm a very small person, you know, I'm 4'11 and weigh 97 pounds. So, and I was never very big. And I remember standing, all the kids wanted to hit the pinata I was always off to the side watching very carefully for it, for a little break in, you know, because I knew any minute it was going to, then all the candy was going to come pouring out of it. And when the, when it broke and the candy just fell to the ground, I would literally throw myself spread Eagle on the pile. And I'd scoop as much of it as I could under my little body. And I just lie there. And all the other little kids would grab a little handful of candy and walk away. And then, when the coast was clear, I would scoop all the candy onto my little. I'd, I'd create a little apron with the skirt of my dress, and I'd scoop all the candy onto it because I could only carry so much in my two little hands. And I would walk off victoriously to a corner to sort and count my candy. I mean,
0: who there's also a
1: five-year-old that.
0: But there's also strategy, being observant watching, oh, yes. noticing. So there's feistiness combined with being thoughtful and yes. observant and strategic. Yes.
1: And boy, by the way, what mattered to me was getting the most candy that was winning. I was, so this competitive part of me was just, you know, I remember the first time somebody told me, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It matters how you play the game. I, I remember thinking that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Now, as I've gotten older and wiser, I've come to understand that you can redefine what the game is so that you don't have to leave a path of destruction in your wake on your way to winning. Um, And uh, But that's a a whole other story. The other thing I'll say is that another really important moment in my life was when I ran for president of the student council as a junior in high school uh, against my then on-again, off-again boyfriend who became my permanent off again, boyfriend, um, as you might imagine, because I won. And when I came home and my mom said, what happened? And I said, I won. She looked at me and she said, man, it's a shame. You weren't born a boy.
0: Wow. I just got chills, ran up my spine. I don't know why chills or if that's anger or something else, but something just ran up there.
1: And I remember thinking who the hell cares that I'm a boy. When did that become a thing?
0: You know why I think I got that reaction? I won. I was president of my middle school in eighth grade. Yeah. By the way, my speech is I may be small, but I have tall ideas. Brilliant. <laughs> I um, love it. <laughs> and I'm small as well, not 4'11, but, but yeah. plenty short over here. <laughs> yeah. How did that make you feel when she said that?
1: I'm going to show the world mm. that it doesn't matter that I'm a girl. That was my instant reaction. I mean, years later, I came to understand that. I mean, first of all, you know, for a woman of her generation, I, I get it. She thought, oh man, you got all this potential. You're so smart. You, you know, you're so uh, dri- driven. Uh, imagine what you could accomplish. Too bad. You're the wrong gender. Um, it was unimaginable to her that I'd be able to attain as much as. I might've been able to attain had I been a man.
0: Why did the family move from Mexico city when you were 17?
1: The family didn't, I went away to college.
0: (laughs) Oh, so you, you left.
1: I went away to college to to the United States. Are they
0: still in Mexico?
1: No, they eventually left. So my mother was born and raised in Mexico, met my dad at the university of Chicago. And they got married when I was six months old. He joined my grandfather's business in Mexico. And that's how I came to be raised in Mexico. Uh, Eventually. Uh, I think maybe five years after I left, uh, my dad was an executive and he'd gone to work for a company. He ran Latin America for them and then they decided to move him, made him a vice president, moved him to headquarters, which happened to be in San Francisco.
0: Are you more similar to your dad than your mom?
1: Oh, way more similar.
0: Mm. So he was ambitious, driven, feisty?
1: My mother used to call my dad the Sherman tank, because once he set his sights on something, it was like just get out of the way. And she used to call me the little Sherman tank. <laughs> and in fact, you probably can't see it, but over the years, you know, a lot of my students knew that story. Uh, and I've got, I've got like a bunch of little model Sherman tanks <laughs> all over my, all over my desk and my credenza. And by the way, that's to remind me that when you're a Sherman tank, Uh, when I'm a Sherman tank, uh, I sometimes don't notice that I left a path of destruction in my way. Uh, I don't notice that there's anything like, you know, a Sherman tank is a very, very narrow viewfinder. And so all I've got in my sights is this goal. Uh, and I was really lucky that, and perhaps thoughtful and intentional that, uh, I got off the path that I was on when I married my second husband, and the Sherman tank just screeched to a halt. And I had to open the hatch and look up and think, oh, holy cow, there's like a whole other world out here. Uh, Maybe maybe I should periodically stop the tank and look around.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mentioned my coach earlier. So she does a lot of somatic work, which I'm sure you're a fan of just, she gets into the body, close your eyes and does all kinds of stuff, which is why I work with her. She offers a different lens into the work that I do. And so she closed my eyes today and and noticed where my tension is in my body and it's in my shoulders and it's almost always in my shoulders. And I said to her, she's like, well, what does it feel like? I'm like, it's kind of like I got boulders in my shoulders and there are these big boulders. And I go, but inside those boulders are little gems. There are like little diamonds in those boulders. And so our whole conversation today was like, well, do I need to carry those boulders in order to access the gems? Or what would it look like to move the gems from my shoulders into my pockets? And just, you know, I can have them (laughs) in my pockets. I can take them out. I can, you know, when I go to bed at night, I don't sleep with my pants. You know, I could, I love the gems. It was pretty cool. Um, she's, she's spectacular.
1: I love metaphors like that. I think they're really important in helping us get clarity.
0: The word compete is such an interesting word
1: mm-hmm.
0: because the origins of it are Latin and competere is the, is the origin and it means to strive with. And to your yes. point, somewhere yeah. along the line, especially American culture, we get into the zero-sum game deal right. where we it's have to It's all about
1: dis- who wins and who loses.
0: Yeah, and so for you, how what's your relationship with compete today? Has it you sort of mentioned that the tank it's it's opened up a little bit. It's it's still there but maybe it's wider in its lens. How would you describe your relationship with competitiveness today?
1: So for me, I think that it's the way I've redefined winning. So for me it's no longer about winning for me. It's about winning for either a group of us a team, a cause, um, an idea. And and so that still feels, I still feel competitive about uh, w- when I think in those terms, but I don't think in terms of that means there's going to be losers and winners. It's, it's more like, how do we all win here? And how does that
0: make and you feel? How does it make you feel when you say that? Oh, like,
1: like a younger me is thinking really what what happened to you and very and touchy cur- very
0: touchy feeling <laughs> t-
1: and, and the current me says oh, yeah that feels really good to be able to say and and own and and absolutely unequivocally believe mm.
0: uh, the other big thing that I love in the book is this idea of kintsuki I don't know if I said it right but yes. this Japanese pottery yes and when I hear you talk about it's all winning it, I also think about imperfection and that yep. along the way there might be cracks, but how do we create something bigger than ourselves and, and put these different pieces together to form something? Can you talk yeah. about Kintsuki and, and the yeah. Japanese pottery concept and how yeah. that resonates with you?
1: So, I mean, the art form is that uh, in, uh, this is somewhat cultural, that when a pot has been broken, rather than throw it away, it gets put back together and instead of using invisible glue, they mix glue with precious metals like platinum or gold so that when they put it back together, you see all the fissures from when it was broken. And because it's been put together with precious metal, it's actually more beautiful than it was before it was broken. and. David and I use it as a metaphor for what happened to our relationship and what happened as a consequence of it, of the, of the big riff we had. And it's really core to our belief that a relationship, you know, we talk in the book about how relationships exist on a continuum from contact, no connection or dysfunction to what we call exceptional. Uh, And by the way, robust and just plain old functional and strong is along the way. So if you learn, even if you only get that far, you're better off, but if you really want an exceptional relationship, sometimes sometimes the way to get there, not only, but sometimes the way to get there, the way we got there was by learning to repair after a big riff. So we had a very good relationship, very good, very strong relationship, but it didn't become exceptional until I wrote him off. And we came back from that. Mm. Uh, And there were things we learned about each other that even though we'd known each other for two decades, we'd never known. And uh, and and we just emerged from that with a much more beautiful vase. Uh, So that I think is and people were back, you know, you, you note that we end the book with fear and how afraid we often are to move into stuff that might hurt the other person damage the relationship be seen you know result in us being seen as a jerk or whatever the problem is that if if we don't do that then we never learn that we can have a stronger relationship because even if those things do happen we never learn how to repair so one of the things that David and I didn't know how to do is repair that was one of the skills we had in, un, in you know in our belt and that's why we were able to repair with each other
0: it's interesting because contrast that with this idea of pinches and when i was reading that my mom recently said to me she's like we were talking about parenting and my mom was like i was a pincher like i would just give you all little (laughs) pinches i don't know if we're supposed to do that in 2022 i just stay away from anything physical yes um in 2022 (laughs) But my mom was like, oh yeah, we little, you know, gave you little pinches, but you use <laughs> pinch in a different way yeah. as it, as it relates to emotion. So you talk about the importance of repair and that yeah. your relationship was actually stronger because you went to, you know, not talking for a year and really not liking each other to writing a book together. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty monumental. Um, but talk about pinches, because that was something for me as somebody who can get into, anger. And you talk about yeah. anger in the book being a secondary emotion and there's stuff underneath that. Um, But pinches, um, and we're doing all this with the backdrop of a Will Smith slapping somebody on the stage oh, yeah. situation that everybody has an opinion on. I have not voiced any opinion on because I don't think I know, but it's interesting. So pinches though for emotion and, and how you think about those and how we can use them.
1: So the reason I think pinches are so powerful and important to understand in the way that we use it is that everybody that we're in a relation, every relationship has moments where the other person does something that's a little annoying, a little frustrating, not what you would have wanted, a little disappointing, right something they're not all always fantastic every moment of every day. Now when something like that that's what we call a pinch you did something that you know, annoyed me that made me feel a little uh, dismissed, or that frustrated me, or and what our tendency when we feel pinched is to say nothing. Ah, it's a small thing, uh, you know. I, I don't, I don't want to make a big deal out of it. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. However, if I've done something that resulted in you feeling pinched. I have no idea unless you tell me. So I'm going to do it again in all likelihood. And if you, if the second and third and fourth time I do it, you don't only, your pinch is getting a little bigger. It's time to say something. And when people say, ah, it's not worth it. Oh, and this is in the book. We always say substitute the pronoun it for I, you or we. I'm not worth it. You're not worth it. We're not worth it. Then ask yourself again, whether it's worth raising. And if you raise pinches, you often avoid crunches. That's when something gets to be a really big deal. And then it's a whole lot harder to to figure out how to get yourself out of it. And, you know, when I think about the big rift between David and me, I think there might've been pinches along the way that I might have surfaced, Um, you know, I don't, you know, it turned out that the circumstances were just kind of huge uh, in terms of what I wanted from him and expected from him and the choices he made. So the circumstance might have still pushed us into where we got, but I think we would have repaired sooner. Let me put it that way. I think we would have repaired sooner if I had named some of the finches.
0: It's interesting when you talk about naming pinches. Men will often say to other men, "You're just being sensitive, and stop yes. being so sensitive." Which, yes. by the way, my entire childhood was my two brothers saying, "Stop being so sensitive." Yeah. And I've come to understand that that sensitivity or empathy, uh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of other ease in there that that yes. come with it for me. Um, but I do think that I've had to balance my own sensitivity to define is it a pinch or is it a poke maybe or mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. like how do we how do we navigate that how do we navigate when to express the pinch and when yeah. t- to maybe just be like hey that's just a poke and we're gonna poke each other like that's part of friendship and love and right right and you know guys call it busting balls right like yeah we, right, we right. just that's what we do to each other right. how do we that's
1: also how you've been socialized by the way um as men um what, what so I think one of the things to remember, you know, as we note in the book is that we're all equipped with two antenna. One antenna is picking, is internally focused and picking up signals on what's going on for me. And the other antenna is picking up signals on what might be going on for you. And to the extent that we work on Honing those antenna to pick up more and more subtle signals, um, the more likely we are to be more interpersonally competent. That's one of the premises. You got to listen to yourself, you got to listen, and 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 you also want, you know, are well served to be, to your point, sensitive to what might be going on for the other person. And I think that. Uh, culturally, we do such a disservice to men by naming the ability to actually get in touch with how, uh, how I'm feeling personally and how you might be feeling as something bad or something that's not manly or so, I mean, something that's got negative stuff attached to it. What a disservice to all of us. Which by the way, is part of the problem that business, so, there's so much trouble in business when it comes to using emotions effectively, right? People do business with people. It, not, they don't just do a business with ideas and money and, and strategies, they do business with people. People, by the way, have feelings um, and Rather than say there's no place in business for feelings, uh, maybe the narrative should be there's a important place in business for feelings as long as we learn to express them in ways that are productive and we learn to use them in the same way that we use thoughts. You know, thoughts and feelings are like treble and bass in music. If I really want to know you, and the only thing you ever share with me is what you think, I am not going to know you.
0: We're going to come back to this because my background's in sport. And I would say the only place where this exists more than business is probably yes. in sport, yes. where we're, yes. we often teach people to not yes. show emotion and yes. not tap into emotion, which I think is a flawed approach as well. But before we go there, I want to tell you a quick story. And yes. this, I, I hope, will make you smile. I was preparing for this podcast and I was listening to other podcasts that you've been on yeah. and you mentioned that antenna concept Yeah, and I was listening to it as I was carrying about, I was carrying nine books into the post office uh-huh. and you've written a book. So, you know, you've probably sent yes. out books to people and send it media mail and go through this whole thing. And for those that don't know, if you walk in the post office with nine books, the people that work behind the counter are usually not that excited to see you because now you're going to create a line and everyone's going to be yeah. upset. And so you have to pick your battles. And I actually had a 10th book that I was like, you know what? 10 might be too much. I'm going to leave it in the car. Let's just go with nine. So I go with nine, I go in the post office and there's no line. I walk right up to this woman, stack my books up on the counter and we start talking uh-huh. and she's great. And she said, are you an author? And I was like, yeah, I am. She's like, what's it about? And so I start talking about my book and she starts telling me all about her and she's in school and she's studying and she works here, this, that, and the other. And we just have this great connection before I know it, the books are gone. Um, There's no line. Everybody won. Everybody had a good experience. She smiled. She said, have a great day. And by the way, they're usually not that nice just as a FYI, Um, (laughs) but she was just so, so nice. I walk out and I think to myself, I go, you know what? I've got that one more book that yeah. I could probably now bring in, but I also have a copy of my book in the car and the antenna thing that you were talking about. I was just fully locked in on her. She was locked mm-hmm. in on me. She was making me feel great. I think I was yep. helping her feel great. You know, What if I gave her a copy of my book and just said, thanks for making my day. So I go okay. back in, I give her <laughs> the other book to mail. I love I go, it. And I want to give you a copy of my book and, she said, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. You made my day. I'm going to read it as soon as I don't have anyone, any customers. Thank you so much. This means so much to me. I can't wait to read it and dive in. And and it made her day, but it made my day. Like I left there full, happy, excited. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to thank you because it, it really did. It was inspired by you talking about the antennas and my antenna was on to connect with her. We fortunately, her antenna, she was ready. um, Yeah. People aren't always. And we had this connection and now I'm going to go drop books off on Saturday instead of Friday and hope that she's working there. So I can just go to her and not have to deal with somebody who doesn't want to see me. So I I figured I'd share that because I think that wouldn't have have happened if I wasn't listening to you talk about these antennas and my antenna was up to listen to her, to have her tell Mm -hmm. her story, to inquire and not assume that she's just there to like do the books and leave her alone. Cause you talked about a barista and uh, the podcast I was listening to and yeah. You know, it, it, and so it literally was it it changed my my day so thank, oh, you thank you
1: thank you that 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 did more than make me smile it made my heart sore
0: <laughs> all right so now <laughs> let's go to the other side of the coin which are emotions in performance and yeah. so as i said my wait back- before gotta- we
1: leave that before yeah, yeah. we leave that because that's a moment worth you know pausing imagine what would happen If a critical mass of human beings on this planet decided to do more of that, imagine just for a moment how different the world would be if there was some way to get, you know, I'm not talking about everybody, but a critical mass. Okay, now we can go on with your...
0: (laughs) No, we'll stay there. So I, I think it was before we hit the record button, you used the phrase, pay it forward. And that movie pay it forward is exactly that it's one of my favorite movies. I cry every time I watch it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a sad, it's a sad movie, but it's also just profound in and I'm getting chills again, just seeing the lights at the end of the movie with everybody paying it forward. And I think to me, I agree. Like, What would the world look like if everybody was just thinking about what they could do for others and not needing anything in return? And, and, and understanding that that also is linked to happiness. The science around helping other people right. is amazing. Um, right. So.
1: And actually, I would amend that. It's not without, without getting anything in return. It would be because of everything you would get in return. <laughs> just depends on what it is that you're wanting.
0: Yeah, I meant tangibly, right? I didn't get yeah. anything back from her, um, but I walked out of there with
1: yeah.
0: a ton, to your point.
1: Absolutely. A
0: ton. So I like that. Yeah. I like that amendment. All right. Cool. Can we, I, I, I've learned in my life, I like to go fast and sometimes we need to pause and slow down. So thanks for that. That's the good.
1: No, pause. that's good. Yes. So you were starting to go into something else.
0: Yeah, feelings as it relates to mm-hmm. performance.
1: And Uh so my
0: background's in sports psychology. And so when I went through my grad program, we talked about thinking and we talked about self-talk and we actually talked about breathing and regulating emotion. Have you found or noticed anything as it relates to uh, feelings and emotions and performance? And and what have you discovered there?
1: Well, um, I think, my orientation is much more to what is needed in order for two people to relate and connect to each other, as opposed to an individual's performance. Um, so, you know, I come at all of this from a completely different angle. Um, and I I do know that, I, and I don't know a lot about sports psychology, but I, I do know that one of the things that athletes are well served by doing is imagining themselves doing whatever they do in their sport well in fact perfectly uh, i know that when tiger woods was a kid his dad would take him out on the golf course and videotape him playing around and then he'd edit out anytime he did anything other than perfect and then the only thing he'd show him was perfect swings over and over, perfect putts over and over. So there is something about focusing on what you do well, um, as a way of, I think, enhancing performance. Uh, And I think that is, there's a version of that when you're interacting with another person, which is periodically noticing what is creating more connection, and what is resulting in less connection, and doing more of the first and less of the second. So there is a discipline to noticing and then understanding what are the circumstances that created our ability to be that way with each other, and then figuring out how to recreate those circumstances. so that's where I see some of the potential overlap. Now let's get back to your thing about feelings. So when it comes to connecting with another human being, I just don't think it's possible to do that without feelings. Uh, in fact, you know, even if, you know, when people say oh, there's no place for feelings in business, well, how are you going to inspire anybody with no feelings? How are you going to motivate anybody with no feelings? And. I don't know, but I wonder, so I was a gymnast. It was the only sport that would have been reasonably practical for me to pursue. Uh, My dad had been a gymnast. My dad had been an NCAA champion. Um, and, uh, And I think that the, to the extent that feelings got in the way of my performance because I got nervous. I was afraid. I didn't think I could do it, all of that stuff. Yeah, not good feelings. But to the extent that I remembered how ecstatic it felt to land that dismount perfectly, I think I'm not sure there was no place for feelings.
0: Yeah, a couple of thoughts. One sports are are often team oriented. Yeah. And so even gymnastics. I love watching the Olympics. And one of the things I think the U S gymnasts tend to have is camaraderie and you can see and the support and the joy, whereas the Chinese gymnasts who are usually technically, and I'm not a gymnast expert, but technically, and the Russians technically are proficient that you don't see that same joy and that same emotion as you see with the American gymnasts. So I think that's a good example. And then if you go beyond a that's an individual sport that they have a team element to it, but other sports where they're passing the ball to each other and they have Mm -hmm. to be connected as a unit. Absolutely. It requires trust and communication and emotion. And there was a study done years ago that found it's they studied touching in the national basketball association and found the teams that touched the most high five, the most, um, it was correlated to their success on the floor and so I, I, I think there is a place for it. In addition to that, I, I think there's a difference between regulating emotion and shutting emotion down. And, yes. and just because we're using a breath to calm our heart rate so that we can execute clear doesn't mean we still don't have emotion, uh, but it's more intentional or regulated. I think the mistake people make is when they just shut it down and they just try to, be a robot. And they, especially in a team sport, then they don't support each other. They're not connected to their teammates. The last thing I'll say is for me, greatness is how do I make other people better? So if you follow the greatest performers, they are often able to make people around them better. And to your point earlier, the only way you're going to help someone be better is if you're connected to them. And so that's a big piece to it as well.
1: Yeah. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, the role of so you know Daniel Goldman wrote the quintessential book on emotional intelligence, and um, I think one of the reasons that touchy feely became so legendary and so successful is that the emotional intelligence, the awareness of the importance of emotional intelligence, was starting to become a little more widely
0: uh, accepted,
1: dispersed, and accepted but a lot of people didn't know how, how do I, how do I increase my emotional intelligence? I get it. I get it that it's important. And what he talks about is the, the import as part of emotional intelligence is emotional regulation. Um, and that he doesn't say emotional suppression. <laughs> he says emotional regulation. And then we, we might, Take it one step further and say the strategic use of emotion uh, in service of whatever it is you're trying to
0: attain. Yeah, you said in the book, I love this feelings are never wrong. What might be inappropriate is how you express them or what you attribute the cause yes. to. Yeah, it just summarizes what you're saying in a, in a really profound way. And I just believe in the power of when and knowing when an emotion is helpful and when it's Mm -hmm. a hindrance and understanding that and creating awareness around that is, is, is big.
1: And learn and and understanding back to something we talked about earlier. We're all works in progress. Sometimes learning something once is not enough. We have to learn it over and over again. And that's where we often need someone else. And by the way, expressing one emotion with one person might be perfectly fine, and with another, maybe not so fine. So um, I think it's nuanced. That's why we could not write and do justice to our work, Five Easy Steps to Better Relationships. I mean, I cannot tell you the fights we had with our publisher over the fact that we would not write that book. And I will also tell you in the category of being a little vulnerable, that when the book first came out and uh, we couldn't get anybody in the mainstream media or any of the big podcasts to cover it, uh, you would have thought that in February of 2021, at the height of the pandemic and a month after the insurrection, somebody would have been interested in a book that could teach people how to connect, particularly connect across differences, a little better, but, and I remember saying to the podcasters when we were done, uh, I said, are we off the air? They said, yes. I said, so let me ask you this. If it, and they were like, oh my God, everybody on the planet should read this book. It's so great. Um, It could be such a game changer. So I said, so why are we having such a hard time? And they said, oh, Carol, that's easy. If you'd written five easy steps to getting rid of toxic people in your life you'd have a runaway bestseller. But you're asking people to actually invest, do work, understand that it's not so easy. Nobody wants to hear that. They want the
0: easy solution. So in full transparency, so my book is called Shift Your Mind, Nine Mental Shifts to Thrive in Preparation and Performance. Now, publisher as well was big on, oh, you should, ha- you, know, you should have the number on there. And there are, we focus on these yeah. nine shifts that you go back and forth on. I said, that's fine, but you will not write the nine because these are yeah. not the nine, but there are yeah. nine. So if yeah. you want the number nine on there, you can go to the number nine. And I yeah. had somebody be like, no, seven's a good number. Five's a good number. And I go, what, what are you talking about? And we had like 35 of these shifts, but we wanted to drill it down to, to nine of them. But to me, I think nuance is hopefully someone will walk away from my book and it'll just make them think about how they set their mind in preparation, how they set their mind in performance. And I'm yeah. pretty keen on saying, do not just follow it. It's not some roadmap to just follow. Right. Uh, it's not a Bible. It, you know, It's right. supposed to get you to start thinking about what works for you. Um, but I agree. And hopefully you still feel good about the path that you went and it's authentic to you. And um, I think at the end of the day, it's probably worth it to be true. Yeah. To, yeah. Know. I
1: mean, look, we didn't set out, we didn't write the book because we wanted to make, you know, be on a bestseller list and we did want, but we did write the book because it, it, uh, it almost feel almost feels like the gospel and we're looking for a bunch of, I guess they were apostles or something to actually spread the word because, you know, as I said to you earlier, I believe with every, fiber of my being, that if we had more people on this planet equipped with these skills and competencies, we would have healthier communities, schools, families, never mind organizations and teams. Um, and I think that the the disappointment, because I still, uh, I will tell you that when they told me that, that was the darkest moment of my entire career. Mm. I was like, wow.
0: When they told you that, if that you put the that number I, on there. If,
1: that if I had written, you know, five easy steps uh, and, and it was because, wow, you're telling me that the only way people are going to be willing to engage with something as important and powerful as this is if we reduce it to five easy steps. I, I just, I just didn't even know what to do
0: with that. You would think that's true though. You, you believe, you believe that to be true.
1: Well, I think the jury's out. So look, it's been translated into 15 languages. We've sold 55,000 books, which I'm told is a reasonable number. I have no idea what a successful book is or not, but I'm told that's a reasonable number. Um, but it, it hasn't been a New York times, bestseller million copies sold. So I don't know.
0: It sounds like, sounds like feisty uh, Carol is, is, yeah. uh, is coming yeah. out there.
1: Because I read so much stuff that I'm like, wow, <laughs> really? Really? Yeah.
0: I, I yeah. think I think to me, this is my opinion. Who the heck knows, right? Mm-hmm. Who the heck knows why something takes off and why something doesn't? And I mean, people claim to know, but I, I would disagree with those podcast hosts who, who say, oh, if you had just done X or just done Y. Yeah. Cause there are plenty of those books that have those numbers and haven't sold anything, and then there are best selling books that don't have a number on there at all. Um, yeah. so if I can get you out of that darkest day and just say, Hey, your book's making an impact, there's probably 55,000 people that are grateful that you did. And then, like my dad always says, who knows, maybe next year yeah. there will be a hundred thousand, and yeah. uh, and so we'll see what happens. But, um, I want to let you just plug the book specifically let people know where they can find you on social. I know you're on LinkedIn. Um, Mm -hmm. Where can people learn about what you're up to your business? You mentioned the nonprofit earlier, give us where we can find all things, Carol Robin.
1: Oh, thanks. So first of all, um, there's a a book website, www.connectandrelate.com. So if you go to that website, um, you will you'll see all the fancy people that have endorsed the book, and you'll you can order the book through that, and you can from anybody, not just Amazon. Um, and um, and you'll also see two other drop down menus that might be interesting. One is all the media and podcasts and articles that have been written about it, and the other one is called I think activities that has a free self-assessment that you can download and uh, and then maybe do your own and then give it to a few people who know you. By the way, this is another thing you could, you might wanna try um, and have them and then compare notes. How do you see yourself versus how do they see you when it comes to all this stuff? Uh, there's also a free downloadable start your own learning group, using the book with, uh, with a, a, a step-by-step how to use the book to, to do maybe more than just a reading, uh, uh, what do they they call it? I guess a reading group, Uh, it's a learning group. So uh, I think one of the things that's powerful about the book, we were really committed to trying to create as much of the experience that the students had for the reader. And of course, the reason that the course is so legendary is that the students mostly learn by doing not by listening to us, not by reading, uh, you know, articles, but by engaging with each other and learning what it is that they do well and not so well. And so that's why at the end of every chapter, there's a deep in your learning with suggestions on things to go out and do and then reflect on. Uh, So, um, you know, it's still not going to, still not going to duplicate the course, but If somebody actually, I've gotten some wonderful LinkedIn messages from people who read the book who said, oh my God, I actually, actually did what you said I should do. And oh my God, it's like, I reconciled, you know, it's like, I'm pretty sure this book just saved my marriage. Uh, You know, I just, I just made up with my girlfriend. I, I, and I think that's the other reason the course was so legendary. I mean, it was at a business school at an elite business school. And of course, 10, 15 years later, I hear from alums, you know, I just became a CEO. I just founded a company. I, I'm so grateful for what I learned, but I get just as many, you know, wow. I, my brother and I stopped talking to each other and, you know, we thank you for, you know, reminding me of all this by getting a book. I got him a book and we sat down together and we're talking to each other. again. So um, I think that I would want the audience to know that the book is relevant to any relationship in your life for any relationship you'd like to make better in your life
0: awesome yeah you came on my radar first with the adam grant uh speaking gig so it's kind of interesting and then i was like oh that's interesting and then i was at a conference and i was talking to someone about what i did and they had gone through your class at stanford and they were raving about you and so I was like, um, oh, well, let me get on LinkedIn and see if we can connect. Then I was like, you know what? I think, I think she'd be awesome on the podcast. So I'm glad I did. And we yeah. started this conversation. You said. Yeah, I hope that this conversation will impact one person. So I hope it did. Um, If you want to listen to more of these conversations, you can do it at strongskillsco slash podcast. And then I am also on LinkedIn, like Carol, you can connect with us both there. And then Twitter is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. But Carol, this has been a lot of fun. I'm grateful for you. I feel like, you know, I had my coach this morning that I got to share with you. Now my friends who are listening to this can check in on me and say, Hey, Brian, are you doing the work on that? And How's that going? Uh-huh. Uh, I just deeply appreciate your help and assistance and a little bit of nudges here and there about how I'm thinking about myself and how I can grow. And hopefully others are listening along the way and can learn from some of my mistakes or some of my failures. Um, but I appreciate you being vulnerable with us and, and sharing what's on your mind. Um, and I feel like I really know you now. So I appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast and hopefully Maybe we can break bread next time I'm in San Francisco. at. Oh, of,
1: that would be wonderful. I would love that.
0: At one of our favorite restaurants since uh, okay. you live there now and I used to. So Bring they, your
1: wife. Uh, we'll get together with my husband and we'll have a great time. This has sounds, been a blast.
0: Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Carol.
1: Thank you. Take care. Thank you for
0: listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem.
1: We're all equipped with two antennas. One antenna is picking, is internally focused and picking up signals on what's going on for me. And the other antenna is picking up signals on what might be going on for you. And to the extent that we work on honing those antenna to pick up more and more subtle signals, the more likely we are to be more interpersonally competent.